What I want to speak about tonight is a series of reflections really on why practice mindfulness at all? Why engage in this process that you're engaging in at the moment? Which sometimes, I don't know if it ever strikes you, can have a slightly ridiculous air to it. As you sit there, like this, or walk slowly up and down your path and down again. As um, an Australian journalist once said to me, he said, you know, after seeing people doing walking meditation, he thought they'd look like they'd had their brains sucked out through their eyeballs. <laughs> so, so there's a slight air of ridiculousness, isn't there, to this? You know, as I said right at the very beginning, to keep a sense of humour about this is always a very useful tool when we engage in meditative processes. However, what we're engaging in is also, despite its ridiculous sort of cloak, is also extremely serious because it's meant to deal with many of the problems that we encounter in life. It's not the only tool that the Buddha speaks about, and let's make this clear, you know, mindfulness takes its place in part of a strategy that the Buddha, in fact, asks us to engage in which includes things which don't often get talked about, such as ethics, for example, which I did speak a little bit about on the first evening when I introduced the precepts. So there is this seriousness to it, and mindfulness plays its part in the strategy of working towards emancipation, freedom, towards some kind of clarity, towards liberation, to use the big Buddhist term that gets placed on this, uh, towards something which is known as Nibbana, or Nirvana, probably much more familiar to you in the Sanskritized version of it, uh, towards Nirvana. And I'll say a little bit more about that as I go through this talk. Offers out big promises when we engage in these practices. However, that's not why I think most people come to meditative practices in general. I don't think they often come with a big sense of, I want to reach nirvana. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's kind of a bit grandiose, isn't it? You know, I want to reach nirvana. I want to be fully liberated, fully enlightened, <coughs> fully awakened, actually, to use the correct term. We don't often come with that. We often come with what I call our normal, ordinary suffering, our normal, ordinary pains, our distresses, the things that we um, find very difficult to shift in our lives. Often people come sometimes to these practices with a sense of, even if it's not really something very manifest in their lives as being wrong, just a sense of something isn't quite right. There's a sort of quivering at the back of life that's unsettling, that's uncanny, um, that brings often people to these practices. So let's, let's start from that ground base. That's where we really operate from, where we start to move from. Acceptance often of that there is something not quite right in our lives. 
That's the Buddha's starting place. In a way, he's saying to those who don't even recognize that and don't even see that in their lives, that actually you've got no grounds in which to engage in this. It may come to you, it may not come to you. That realization that something needs to be done, that there is something, as I say, that's not quite right with our lives. But most of us, I think, are looking for something, searching for something. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I kind of throw that out there, thinking it will have some resonance with you. Most of us are searching for something. Um, where there's a lot of talk of happiness in our contemporary society, you know, even gets on the political agenda, um, the notion of happiness. Um, but certainly we're looking for something like perhaps contentment, calm, happiness, if you want to use it as a word. And... Sometimes we gravitate towards these practices. Now, I want to read you a quotation just to start off and get this, in a sense, conversation going um, and this series of reflections going about. And I want to do it not from a Buddhist perspective, but from a perspective of a 17th century philosopher mathematician, somebody called Blaise Pascal, who many of you might have heard of, um, who wrote something called Pensee, Thoughts and they were collected together after his death. And he gives the most compelling reason, I think, for one of the most compelling reasons I've ever come across for practicing mindfulness. He says this, it's a fairly lengthy quote, but bear with me, because I think it might impact on you. We never keep to the present. We recall the past. We anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming and were trying to hurry it up. Or we recall the past as if to stay its too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us and do not think of the only one that does. So vain that we dream of times that are not and blindly flee the only one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think how we are going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or with the future. We almost never think of the present, and if we do think of it, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and the present are our means. The future alone our end. Thus, we never actually live, but we hope to live. And since we are always planning how to be happy, it's inevitable that we should never be so. It's a quite a compelling reason, I think, and he sums up actually in non-Buddhist terms a lot of things that we find within Buddhist thought, Buddhist psychology. Grasping after that which we will never be certain that we'll reach, planning for something that actually is present now, um, and as a consequence we never actually live it, as he says, and, you know, hopefully, you know, just 
just trying, 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 planning, planning, planning to organize our lives in such a way that we will get there in the end. Have you noticed how futile that is? <laughs> how we never actually achieve that which we're searching for. Now, this is not meant to be condemnatory. I'm not kind of trying to say, well, we're terrible, we can't do anything. We do our best. Um, this is effectively what the tools that we have for the job at the moment really are not suitable for purpose. Yeah. And there's no real reason why they should be. Have you noticed that when we're born, we don't get something called life, a user's manual? Yeah. We kind of stumble our way around, don't we, trying to find the best ways to live. Most of us are not particularly malicious. We don't go out to hurt others or to hurt ourselves, but in the striving to live, we often end up doing so. You know? And often that's very saddening. Uh, we fall short of our own ideals. We fall short of that which is our biggest possibility. The Buddha begins to identify some of the reasons why we stumble around in this way. He puts it very strongly sometimes in a very famous um, discourse which is usually translated as the fire discourse. It actually even finds its way into T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, by the way, if any of you are familiar with Eliot. Um, he speaks about everything burning. He says, everything in this world is burning. Your eyes are burning, your ears are burning, your nose is burning, your tongue is burning, everything is burning. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's pretty well what he says. Everything is burning. What are they burning with? They're burning with greed, aversion, and delusion. This is what they're burning with. These are the three psychological conditions he identifies. And at the very basis of it is a sense of confusion. What... Jenny was talking about last night, that dukkha that comes about. Why we're pushing in a second arrow, why we're firing that second arrow at ourselves, uh, which makes things even more painful. Why is that coming about? It's coming about not because we're stupid, but we're confused. You know, the word that's often used in the original languages translates to something like ignorance or delusion. So it's probably strong in English. I think the Buddha possibly means something more like confusion. We're just confused in this world. We're born into it. Um, we have guides through this world in our early stages who are pretty confused also. They're generally called parents. <laughs> and they, 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 they do a good thing. They pass their confusion on. <laughs> so we get hereditary confusionism. <laughs> Um, as a result of this. But joking aside, it's this confusion uh, which we inhabit, out of which grows many of the ills of our personal world and of the world in general. It's to that which the Buddha is directing us. And when he speaks of awakening, 
I don't know about you, but when I first you know, heard the word enlightenment, you know, I was very young when I first came across it. I was age 17. I first encountered all of this when I first went to India at the age of 17. And, you know, people were talking about enlightenment, and it didn't really mean that much to me. And later on, as I kind of practiced and still remained within, you know, Buddhist practice in general, I started to stumble along the fact that the actual word was awakening, not enlightenment. And that actually, I don't know how it sounds to you, but it actually meant a lot more to me. You know, it actually indicated, and then that confusion that I've already talked a little bit about, that we're actually stumbling around almost like somnambulists, you know, sleepwalkers. This is how we move through life. Part of that confusion is we actually don't open our eyes. We don't actually look and see. We don't wake up. We don't actually wake up from that sleep of confusion that we're in. We think the confusion is the way things are. Yeah. And many of much of that confusion adds to a distortion in our perceptions of things. So we look in, you know, we look for happiness perhaps in places where it doesn't deliver, where it cannot be delivered. In you know, we make demands on people to make us happy. I mean, what a death knell for relationships. You know, when you demand in a sense that somebody make you happy. It almost kills it when we demand that the world make us happy, make us content, make us feel secure. The Buddha himself, and I'll just read you this one, only one other quote, but the Buddha himself saw this very clearly at the beginning of his quest. He saw, you know, for example, he saw, as we do now when we look around the world, we see so much violence, we see so much enmity amongst people. You know, not even just the, the big conflicts that we see going on in the present world, but just the, the conflictual relationships that we see, you know, politically, the conflictual relationships that we see just even on the personal level that are going on. And, and the Buddha says this, this was almost his spur to what he goes on to try to discover. He says, fear comes to one who embraces violence. Just look at people quarreling. Let me tell you of the strong agitation that I felt, seeing people struggling like fish in shallow water with enmity towards one another. When I saw this, I became fearful. Wanting a safe place to hide, to shelter, I saw that the world lacked substance and that there was not one part of it that was changeless. Seeing people trapped in mutual enmity I grew dissatisfied. And then when I looked closely, I saw buried in their hearts a barb, an arrow that was difficult to perceive. It is this barb, this arrow, that impels people to run in all directions. Once it is pulled out, the running ceases as does the inevitable exhaustion that accompanies it. I mean, it's a very profound statement. I don't know how it strikes you, but it's a very profound statement. Doesn't it sound like contemporary life, this last bit? You know, people running in all directions. Yeah. Something is driving us. 
we don't just run in all directions for no reason. Yeah. We don't engage in what we do for no reason at all. It must have some kind of payoff for us. It must some have some kind of reward. Otherwise, we wouldn't engage in it. So when we look at this behavior that engage, we engage in, that often results in exactly what Jenny was talking about last night, it results in this dukkha, in this dissatisfaction, in this unsatisfactoriness, sometimes just in downright suffering. Actually, we don't engage in it, in a sense, mindlessly. We engage in it because we think it's going to give us something. Yeah. And sometimes it does. Sometimes we find a small interlude of peacefulness, a small interlude of contentment, certainly small interludes of pleasure and joyfulness in it. But have you noticed when we try, almost like the butterfly hunter, to pin those things down, what happens? Yeah. It's trying to like catch life and hold on to it, trying to stay its, its inevitable movement, its inevitable evanescence. We try to stay its momentum and we end up suffering as a result. So at the back of this confusion, there is something which is very present for us, which we're trying to get. You know, we might not even call it happiness, but it's certainly something which is to do with security, with identity. You know, we want to be secure in this world. We want to find something which doesn't change. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? We want to find something that doesn't change, something that, you know... Actually, one of the worst things that can probably happen to you is if you have a partner and they change on you. <laughs> yeah. But it's naturally going to happen. This is what happens. Changes occur. When we look at philosophies and religion, sometimes East and West, I don't want to point the finger at anyone, they often point at the kind of the fulfillment of the goal as being something that doesn't change. Yeah. Plato had it in, the, in a kind of mythical realm with ideals which didn't change of which the philosopher was party to. Christianity has its heavens, and so do many other religious traditions. The Buddha never posited this. Nirvana, which was this waking up process, wasn't the waking up to some kind of heavenly existence. It was the waking up to where we are now. I, posit I posed the question very briefly the other day, where are we trying to get to? Actually, the answer probably in Buddhist terms, certainly in terms of early Buddhism, is nowhere. We're not trying to get anywhere than to where we are already. And it always strikes me again, just mentioning Eliot, you know, in one of his four quartets, you know, in Little Gidding, for example, he says, at the end of all of this exploration, it is simply to return to the same place and know it for the first time. Yeah. In a way, this is what the path of mindfulness is, to explore where we already are and to wake up to where we already are. Now, there are many, many other components to that waking up process, as I say, but mindfulness is an extremely important component of that. 
And mindfulness is the waking up to how we are with all of, if you're kind of like warts and all, everything, the way we are at this present moment in time. Not, and I think this is where John Kabat-Zinn again, which Jenny mentioned last night in his definition of mindfulness, this non-judgmental stance. This is not meant to just make us feel bad because you know we delve into a lot of really quite difficult material when we look psychologically within ourselves. We this is not for the in a way for faint-heartedness. You know, we begin to look our demons in the face. We begin to actually start to befriend them rather than make enemies out of them. Yeah. This is part of the process. And so another dimension of this whole path of mindfulness is, is that it's a path of kindness. It's a path of self-acceptance, which is another way of saying kindness towards ourselves. And when we become kind to ourselves, we become much kinder to the world and towards others as well as a result of that. But coming back to the confusion, this is the basic diagnosis that we're in a confused state. We try to do things and try to perhaps claim or reclaim a kind of lost Eden, a lost paradise, by trying to create it for ourselves out of external things. I don't know if you ever think of this. That if only I had scenario that Jenny was pointing to last night is a quest for happiness. The mythology is once we get it, we will be happy, isn't it? That's the mythology. It's the mythology, again, as was mentioned last night, and I'm just reiterating, is the mythology of the advertising industry. If only you have this, you will be this kind of person and you will be happy and you'll be living a wonderful life with all this status and that, well, at least until the next model comes out. So we're looking for it externally. We often look for the quest for our securities, our happinesses, in the possession of external phenomena. Even others, other human beings, becomes possessions. That's often that acquisitive nature. We draw people towards us, hope to hold them in place as possessions to keep a sense of our own identity. Does any of this make sense, by the way? (laughs) Because if it doesn't make sense, in a way the path of this path of mindfulness, this path towards awakening really does not make sense. Because it's based on this deep, deep analysis of where we are initially. You know, where we're, in a sense, going wrong, not willfully so, often, but just out of this fundamental confusion that we live, that we inhabit. The problem is, the fundamental confusion is not often one that we want to get rid of. We're so wedded to it, we think that is the way things are. It's like, you know, if these glasses had a tint on them and somebody says, actually, well, the world isn't blue, you know, and I refuse to take off my glasses to see that it isn't tinted in that way. Well, this is true, if you like, of the lenses that we look through, which color this world in such a way that I don't really want to see it. 
So if I was going to use this word instead of confusion, of ignorance, let's not hear it in this pejorative sense that we often speak of somebody being ignorant, but think of, think of it also as being a, a state of ignorance. I want to ignore the way things are in the search for something which is a fantasy, a chimera, yeah. something which is fantastical, which actually doesn't exist. And some of those things were the things, the very things that Jenny was t touching on last night in, this, in, her, in her talk. I want things, for example, to be permanent in a world of change. As the Buddha says in that quotation, I look around the world and I see not one part of it that is changeless. It might be changing at different rates. Human beings change at certainly a different rate to mountains. But even the Himalaya continue to rise, you know, as the Indian subcontinent butts into the rest of Asia, pushing the mountains up, and they rise by a certain percentage each year. You know, everything is changing. There is not one part of this world which is stable. And that can be a terrifying prospect. I don't know how it strikes you. It can be a terrifying prospect, but it can also be liberating. Here's one little liberation that we can do to cease to try and grasp after things as being permanent. Part of one of the, something that technically in Buddhist languages is, which is called vipalasas, um, distortions of perceptions. You know, distortions of perception. And one of the distortions of perception is to want to view the impermanent as being permanent. Yeah. We look at those things around us, we look at the people around us, and we look at ourselves often, and there's that deep-seated sense of wishing and willing for permanence there, that this is not going to change. Again, touching on what was spoken about last night, that this is not going to change. But this is such an important dimension because if we grasp after the impermanent as being permanent, what is going to result from that? Well, certainly dissatisfaction, isn't it? If it's talking about minor things in this life, even those little things, you know, like the, I don't know, the loss of something, the breakage of something, even something being stolen, and these can be minor things that don't actually ultimately affect your life in any great degree. But we still get upset, don't we? We get irritated. Yeah. Uh, the <laughs> one writer, actually a ghost story writer, talked about the, uh, the malevolence of the inanimate object. <laughs> it's always trying to get its own back on you by not working. <laughs> You know, this is what happens. The maliciousness that's, that we can associate with that world. It's just doing it to me. Why is it doing it to me? It's not working. Uh, and we get so upset about it. And then we, then that's, you know, that can be irritating. We can even get angry about it. But then there comes the, the, the suffering, isn't there, that's involved with the loss of loved ones. Yeah? With the loss of those who are near and dear to us, who we care about. Um, and we often don't take on board, of course, our own impermanence, 
almost as if we've got this little certificate with an exclusionary clause written into it. You know, everything is impermanent, not me. <laughs> I'm somehow excluded from this. So, in that basic stance that we take, and, you know, there is much, much dukkha. You know, when we begin to view the world as permanent when it's actually impermanent. It, there is a deliberate, I'm saying it's not willful, but sometimes there is almost a willfulness to this of not wishing to see that impermanence around us. Not wishing to see our own impermanence is somehow it was tainted. It's somehow it's not real. Interestingly enough, the, the Greek word phenomena, of which our word is derived, the word phenomena is derived out of, was pejorative. It meant unreal. You know, the real was that which didn't change. Yeah. But who could find the real? It was only given to some kind of super sense um, that wasn't within this world. Because everything that we touch, everything that we see, everything that we contact is actually impermanent, you know, including ourselves. Interesting, this, uh, when sometimes we look at the etymologies of these um, ancient words, the word vipalasa is actually quite an interesting word. It literally means to pick up, turn round and throw back down again. You know, almost as if we're distorting it by picking the, the perception up, turning it around, reversing it, and then throwing it back down again and seeing what we want to see. Yeah. And we're doing this constantly. Yeah. Doing this constantly. So when we start to talk about impermanence in this way, then we're talking about something that we're psychologically almost resistant to actually taking on board. When we really begin to take impermanence on board, it's like being ahead of our partings in life. Yeah. It's very interesting in Tibetan society, in which I lived for quite a number of years, uh, in Tibetan society, when you um, are sold a religious object or a book of philosophy or anything of this sort, when you're sold it, actually you're not sold it, you pay a ransom fee for it. It's only on ransom to you. Literally, that's what it says. And when you translate the Tibetan, it actually says ransomed to you, not sold to you. you know, almost indicating the fact, of course, that you know, anything that we own is in temporary ownership. Yeah. Yet we hold on to it so much, don't we? And that's part of our confusion, the holding on, the grasping after. Often the accumulation to fill up a sense of vacuity that can be there at the heart of life. Yeah. We try to fill ourselves up with all sorts of things. Um, consciousness itself is very evanescent. It's flux. It's moving in and out. It's not a thing. It's whatever presents itself in Buddhist psychology to, you know, to, the, to the mind, that which we become conscious of. So it's in flux. It's not really a thing. You know, we can't pinpoint this thing called consciousness. We can't pin it down. 
And so that consciousness is completely changing. It changes with each object. It changes with each thought. Yeah. It doesn't remain the same. So it too is impermanent. There is not as if there's consciousness waiting in the back of all of our perceptions that's somehow unchanging, that makes me, me, as well. And this is something I'll talk about in a lot more detail in one of the other talks I give. So even our perceptions, even our consciousness is not permanent. So, in a way, it's a big ask, what you're being asked to take on board. I don't think we realize the enormity of this, but it's done gradually, 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 is to take on this sense of the total impermanence of everything we encounter. Yeah. The poet Rilke, in one of his Duino elegies, one of his masterpieces of um, poetry, says that as human beings we're placed in this world, as he puts it, forever taking leave. Yeah. That's our position, almost saying goodbye constantly to things as they pass through. And this is part of what the Buddha is speaking about. We learn to take our leave of things, to take our leave not in a way that excludes grief and sorrow and loss and all of these things which are quite natural but does thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate